Welcome to An Examined Education, a podcast recorded at the Cambridge School, a Christian classical school in San Diego, California, where we examine an education worth pursuing. On today's episode, Jeff and I sit down with Brent Baber and Russ Kapazinski, uh, the rest of the Bible department, to talk more about how Cambridge is Christian. This is picking up from episode 7 when we talked to Russ about Christian education, and he mentioned a lot of the ways in which we were not Christian, throwing out some common assumptions of what comprises Christian education. We get into a lot of detail in this episode about our curriculum, that core aspect in which we are Christian most explicitly. Um, Walk through the Bible curriculum scope and sequence from seventh grade onward. Without further ado, Jeff Yoder. Thank you all so much for joining us again for an examined education. I'm excited tonight for our episode. Uh, we're bringing back Russ Kabazinski, our assistant head of school, and we have tonight with us Brent Baber, who teaches many Bible classes. What else do you do? <laughs> oh, you're a house governor. It's and almost as if he could introduce himself. Uh, Mr. Baber, why don't you take a second and introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, My name is Brent Baber. Um, I teach upper school theology in Bible 7 through 10. Um, And then I have the opportunity to help lead our house system here at the Cambridge School. That's great. We're also joined by our wonderful co-host, DJ Goodweiler, (laughs) who is uh, joining us and will be quiet for most of this. <laughs> so I'm just kidding. Please share. I enjoy it. <clears throat> anyway, so uh, we're going to reference back to uh, an episode, episode number seven of How We Were Christian. That was part one. This is part two. During that episode, we talked a little bit about some of the assumptions of a classical Christian school and how we're Christian. And we also talked about some of the things that we are not. And tonight, we're going to switch that around into what we are and how we are uh, a Christian school, what positively defines us that way. Uh, so first category or area we'd like to talk about is the curriculum. Uh, we are a Christian school and have a Christian curriculum part of that uh, there. So uh, first, Mr. Kapuscinski, Russ, if you could share a little bit with us about uh, how that curriculum looks in the in the grammar school and sure. some of the things that are covered. Absolutely. And I think in the first episode, we talked a little bit about how uh, getting connected to a story. And so uh, in the grammar school, one of the things that we really try to do is for the kids to learn the grammar of the Bible, the history of the Bible. So they do that from beginning in Genesis, and they take it uh, by grade in different chunks, matching it with other periods of history when they can. And so they will just basically learn the main stories of the Bible. Who are the people? Who are the, the folks that God interacted with in, in the Old Testament? Who are his people? Uh, how, did, how did God establish that relationship? Uh, because that's really our story. And so... Uh, and as they as we move through grammar school, uh, we'll make it through the Pentateuch, Genesis, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, then we'll move into the wisdom literature, well, the, the the different periods of history. And what you are really trying to do during that time is one, uh, just understand our history. And then the other thing that's going on at the time is. We're tapping to some confessional stuff as well. Uh, what are some of the the key doctrines uh, that that flow out of that story? Those foundational doctrines, and so a lot of well, one of the things we'll use is the Westminster Shorter Catechism, okay. some things like that, uh, and just to 
to get some some real pegs on on some important theological mm-hmm. truths that that uh, that come are birthed out of the story. So, for our listeners that aren't familiar with that, can you tell us a little bit about the Westminster Confession? So- Sh- sure, and and they won't. Uh, it, it's a, a shorter catechism. Like it begins. So, one of the first questions. Question one is: What is the chief end of man? And so, what is our purpose? Mm-hmm. And so, it'll it'll just. Uh, it's a historical document that was used uh, as a didactic tool uh, to help disciple children in the home and in the church. And it's just a, a really helpful tool uh, that that Protestant churches have used uh, over uh, historically mm-hmm. uh, to, to, again, root people in the basic tenets of Christianity. Mm, and it seems like it lines up with our grammar school as far as um, a call and response kind of a thing. and. Uh, memorization of learning certain facts. Absolutely. Absolutely. So once they have, uh, particularly as Jeff pointed out, kind of committed to memory the significant plot points, if you will, Mm -hmm. of this narrative, um, and they have these kind of essential truths that they can confess simply um, according to the language um, of catechetical documents, uh, then they move up to the logic stage and kind of having this foundation, Brent, what, uh, how do you build on that? Uh, what does that look like? Maybe start seventh and eighth grade and then we can move into rhetoric. Yeah, this is a great question. And so in seventh grade, we start out looking, uh, kind of at re-examining the entire story that we've been looking at up until this point. And the way that we begin that re-examination is by taking, um, that story, uh, taking a look at that story through the great covenants of scripture. Um, and so my goal really in seventh grade Bible in particular, um, is really to get our students to understand the whole story, not just these kind of small, isolated stories, um, that they would be able to understand God's larger redemptive plan within, within the Old Testament. So the way that we do that is we'll run through some of the great covenants in Scripture. So we'll begin with the Adamic covenant and watch how that works out. Um, that'll lead us into understanding how God's plan of redemption really picks up in the storyline in Genesis 12 with the Abrahamic covenant. Um, we'll see how God continues again that plan with the Mosaic covenant, followed by the Davidic, and finally the New Covenant. So helping students understand um, that really uh, one of the ways that you they can kind of find some hooks to uh, place their biblical knowledge on is through these great covenants in scripture. So that's kind of how we generally approach things in seventh grade. Um, And another one of our larger goals there um, is really to give students an understanding of how to read each kind of scripture that they're seeing in front of them. So, for instance, when we're reading Deuteronomy, what does it look like? What does it look like to equip a student with how to read legal documents uh, from the ancient Near East? Um, and then moving into the Psalms, how does it uh, how does it help a student to know how to read poetry when they're reading the Psalms? Um, and so we really want to give students, in addition to just a, an overall map of the story, uh, we also want to give them uh, the ability to, to read that story well with the appropriate genre sensitivity. Wow. And these are like 12-year-old kids <laughs> doing this stuff? Yeah, and they're and doing it, it every day. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it is my pleasure to get to it's do amazing. this every day and watch them connect the dots. Even just today, uh, we're sitting around and we're doing a review exercise with the Abrahamic Covenant. 
And I'm watching these students understand uh, how the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in the coming of Christ, that he really is the true seed uh, of Isaac, uh, or excuse me, of Abraham, um, that yes, there's a fulfillment in Isaac, but there's even greater, on a greater level, there's a fulfillment in Christ. Um, and to watch the eyes of these seventh graders light up to see that the whole story culminates in Christ is, that's a pretty phenomenal experience. That's awesome. For them too. And then how, what does eighth grade uh, look like? You move past the covenantal structure of the Old Testament and you get into eighth grade. Yeah. So eighth grade brings us uh, New Testament biblical theology. And really, um, it's sort of the capstone of our biblical studies project in that all of the covenants coming together and finding their fulfillment in Christ, we get to see take place on the, the stage of uh, the New Testament. And so we open up our scriptures and in Matthew 1, 1, we find that this Abraham that we've been learning about through the entire Old Testament is highlighted right then and there, uh, that Jesus actually belongs to this line of Abraham. He is the coming seed. And so we'll begin there. Um, and then beginning uh, through the gospels, we'll look at the ways in which Jesus really is the fulfillment of not only this Abrahamic covenant, but of the Davidic covenant and uh, the prophesied new covenant that we see in the in the prophets. Um, so um, as we begin from there, understanding what's going on in the Gospels, we also want to have, uh, we want to build into the course appropriate genre sensitivity. And so we'll look at what does it look like to read a Gospel and what are all the different types um, of literature that are in the Gospel from uh, parables uh, to genealogies and how do we go about parsing those. So one of the big tasks uh, within eighth grade biblical theology is to help students have the appropriate exegetical and then again hermeneutical tools mm -hmm. to unpack not just the gospels but then moving through each type of literature we see mm -hmm. uh, whether that's gospel literature or prose discourse um, to even apocalyptic literature in the book of revelation how do you so it seems like you're approaching it as literature um how do you work with the comp and lit teacher how or is there overlap between the, their actual literature course and this Bible course? Yeah, um, I would say a lot of that overlap comes in the fact that they're learning some of these um, they're learning some of these literary devices in uh, in their literature class. And so learning those devices helps us to then read the metaphor that we see uh, in Scripture in the parables. To give uh, just a brief example, right now we're looking at the story in John 4 of the woman at the well. And one of the questions I asked them was, um, well, what are some of the motifs you see here? Obviously, water comes up as Jesus is offering uh, this living water. But another one of those metaphors that came up was well. Uh, what's Jesus doing? with this metaphor of the well. And then we got to go back into uh, Genesis 26 and Genesis 29 uh, and Exodus uh, 2, where we're getting to see that Jesus is actually playing on this well uh, motif that we see throughout scripture. And that's a that's again, just uh, that's a beautiful thing to watch students encounter um, that Jesus is fully aware of his audience and he's fully aware of what he's doing as he's approaching this woman at the well. Yeah, one of the things that I find so exciting about this particular stage in our curriculum is that we kind of live in a day and age where some of uh, Christianity has been marked by an anti-intellectualism, and uh, that even includes our approach to the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so because there are these different genres in the scriptures, I think this, this anti-intellectualism shows up 
in in people reading every passage of scripture the same way and what happens is you have an over spiritualized interpretation of it because you don't know the, the nuances of the genres and so one of the things that's taking place is that these kids are being equipped to to, to i think to read the scriptures the way they were intended to be read hmm. and it impacts the way we live in the world it impacts application appropriate application when uh, this this big word that Brent likes to use hermeneutics. Uh, <laughs> it's the science of interpretation. How do we interpret these these documents? This 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 revelation that God has given to us. And so, uh, to be able to have those categories at the age of thirteen and fourteen, right? And to to step into uh, your moving into your adult life. Uh, I just boy, what a what a blessing mm-hmm. to have that to be part of uh, those tools in your your toolbox. Right. And I think the other side of that, Russ, is that you either read every text as if it's the exact same, or you avoid the texts that don't fit into the category that you right. have. Exactly. And so, which is a, another kind of it's a, maybe the flip side of anti-intellectualism, but what it is, it's the kind of fear. Um, and I think in our tradition, we would consider it a kind of intellectual, and in this case, spiritual enslavement. And so, being able to kind of take Bible on in the liberal arts tradition specifically, and be able to think about these categories and equipping the students as one way in which we free them um, to be able to engage very seriously with these things, to not have to avoid something because they don't understand it, you know, Mm -hmm. at least on face value. Of course, there's, you know, constant mysteries that are uh, being pursued and things. But um, but yeah, I mean, to, to bring down some of these categories that you know, we three didn't learn until seminary to have them learning it in middle school. Exactly. uh, I did not go to seminary. <laughs> Sorry, there are indeed four of us here. Right. I meant to say. I went to art school. What did you learn about apocalyptic literature in art school? Zero. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but moving on um, through the scope and sequence, uh, it kind of leads right into ninth grade. That's so yeah. let's try. I love that transition. Did you like that? That was beautiful. beautiful. So, a of them. but before we get there, uh, specifically, we talked about how the grammar school's Bible curriculum is uh, kind of wedded nicely to the memorization um, and the kind of call and response that is part and parcel of the grammar stage. And I'm curious if you have some thoughts, and I think some of it's implicit in what we've already said, but mm-hmm. if you have some thoughts about explicitly how do these two classes fit into the logic stage? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that I like to do with my eighth graders, especially, is as we're going through some of Paul's prose discourse, whether that is Romans or First Corinthians, is to have them use some of their logic skills that they've learned um, as they're reading through Paul's letters. Um, as you read through Paul's letters, you know that Paul has a trajectory. He's very much arguing a case, and he's, of course, doing more than arguing, but he's not doing less than arguing. And so to be able to bring some of the skills that they've learned in logic to a text like Romans and say, hey, what is the, what's the premise that Paul is arguing from here? And from that premise, what is the conclusion that he's drawing? Things like that. Um, the students are able to do that because they have the language of logic and uh, they have the knowledge of, a, uh, of how, to, how to handle a text where Paul is arguing. And then um, to, your, uh, to the earlier question about literature, um, I'm also thinking, I'm thinking kind of two ways here. One, we do have some explicit kind of carryover in some ways, in, in important ways, I think. I think of seventh grade, you know, teaching Gilgamesh 
um, as this important story from the ancient Near East that in some sense kind of tells this bent version of the uh, the Edenic story and uh, even has uh, the Noah character show up in Utnapishti and um, being able to kind of have that as this background, this this mythological background that I think a lot of schools and uh, other Christian communities, frankly, and unfortunately, might view that as this kind of potential threat uh, to the you know the students' interaction with the Old Testament narrative. Like, oh man, this this shows up elsewhere. Like, well, then how is Genesis mm. not also a myth, just mm. like uh, you know Gilgamesh is yeah. a myth? Yeah. Uh, how do you how do you take that on and and I mean, maybe you can kind of answer the question why would we do why would we subject the students to this potential kind of cognitive dissonance yeah well, I think the, like the simple answer is is that when you understand some of the historical context, the truth of God shines even brighter here. And so, for instance, when you're looking at Genesis one and two, this creation narrative, and you're understanding in its in its original context, you begin to understand that the author of Genesis, whether that you believe that to be Moses or not, is largely playing on some of um, the Egyptian characters from the Egyptian pantheon, um, and that he's actually putting them to shame in one sense. And so I think having uh, the background of the ancient Near East, it just brings the Bible to life in ways that you couldn't have otherwise if you were afraid of those things. Um, perhaps an, just another example of that is as we get to Deuteronomy, you know, one of the Bible's most boring books, saith all my seventh graders, um, is that when you understand that really what's going on here is it's mimicking uh, the structure of a Hittite treaty. Um, and so as we work through what is a Hittite treaty, what is God saying about himself as this great king and Israel as this lesser king that he's saving? Again, it comes to life for these seventh graders. This boring, super ancient document now begins to make sense in light of its historical context. So I think we need not be afraid of it, but to embrace it gladly, knowing that God is good, and he is going to be even good as the text of Scripture is revealed against its historical background. Yeah, and I remember in seventh grade when I taught that class, and I know that the seventh graders now, as they interact with Gilgamesh, you know, another kind of uh, I mean, easy, I don't know if that's the right word, but another easy way to approach it is just that here you have just one more testimony to some of the truths that you know, exist outside yeah, yeah. of uh, or inside the scriptural narratives, yeah. you know, that that other people are, uh, you know, playing witness to the flood narrative. It should be really interesting to us. Um, so the fact that it's uh, maybe an unreliable uh, eyewitness doesn't mean that it's not an eyewitness in, in some sense, um, that that tradition carries on powerfully in these other cultures. Uh, I always appreciated that kind of crossover in seventh, as early as seventh grade. Yeah. Again. yeah. Yeah. And kind of speaking to, to some of that point, we just, we make the point again and again that we actually need common grace to be able to read the scriptures, right? If it weren't for an understanding of an alphabet and a language, mm -hmm. uh, just what a horse is, we wouldn't be able to understand who Solomon's or what Solomon's horses are. Mm. Um, and so we actually need common grace to be able to, to read the scripture well. So let's just expand that and say part of common grace is understanding this common history that we have. Um, yeah. So the rhetoric stage. You get things kicked off in ninth grade with um, the kind of classic ninth grade class. Every high school teaches it. Everyone, um, yeah. Uh, systematic, <laughs> systematic theology. <Yeah. laughs> That's oh, great. Oh, man. 
Uh, yeah, so we begin in ninth grade with systematic theology, which is just a really just complicated sounding name. But really at the core of it, we're just teaching the core doctrines of the faith. And we're trying to expose our students to what have all Christians across all times and places believed? Um, what have they believed similarly? And where have they differed on some of these core doctrines? Um, so we'll walk through some of the core heads of development within systematic theology. Um, uh, and we'll look at the attributes of God. We'll look at uh, what the Trinity is and how possibly these early fathers could have come to the conclusion that there is such a thing as a Trinity. Um, we'll look at the person of Christ and, um, and we'll make our way all the way to uh, eschatology and, and some of the different views there. Yeah, have you made it to eschatology yet? Because uh, <laughs> Mr. Goodweiler and I... Uh, we, well, well, let's let's just move on. I, I, I think feel, I said the word once in class. Does that count? Yeah. I always felt okay about it because I remember in seminary, my systematic theology teacher also, you know, ran a little long um, in his lectures, and so by the time we got to that final lecture, his lesson on eschatology was Jesus is coming back, <laughs> and that's that's pretty good. I, yeah, that's that's good. good. That's that's good. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Praise God. That's right. <laughs> uh, Brent, you talk about some of these places where they differ. Um, and we're not a covenant school. We've got people from diverse backgrounds and things like that. So how do you take on these uh, kind of these heads of development, as you say, um, these kind of core topoi of theology and explore the space of difference in interpretation? Yeah. Yeah, so I think um, some of the way that we want to do that is by uh, grounding ourselves in some of the ecumenical creeds and saying, hey, here are some of the things that historically all Christians throughout all time have uh, believed. And yet within that, there are some different presuppositions that each one of these different faith traditions has taken. And so as we'll look at Roman Catholicism and we'll look at Eastern Orthodoxy, um, we'll look at the different uh, branches of Protestantism that have come since the 16th century. Uh, we want to ask, what are the core assumptions that they're making? And then how do those core assumptions lead to the differences? Our goal isn't to be prescriptive here, but merely to kind of tell the story of how they got to where they got to. Yeah, and I think that that's such a great, um, again, just to kind of tie it into why systematics belongs in the rhetoric stage. The kind of like embracing these multiple perspectives and by being somewhat fearless to investigate these at times contradictory perspectives, um, at times just nuanced or uh, varied perspectives. Um, in a lot of ways, it deepens our understanding um, of what we believe, of what our churches teach, and why they might teach that. You know, even that language mm -hmm. of exploring the presuppositions that inform a lot of these things. A lot of the people in these faith traditions don't explore the presuppositions. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that we've got the space to do that and allow each view to kind of challenge itself and yeah. and, and and allow the students the space to explore some of that tension, yeah. I, it seems really cool. Yeah, and even within that, I think that we have, <clears throat> we're in good company with some of our Protestant reformers who did the very same thing. As John Calvin was looking um, uh, to understand what the church was and where it came from, a lot of what John Calvin was doing was looking back to the early church fathers who would have been part of even some of this, this Eastern tradition, um, which in so many ways, uh, this Western Protestant tradition uh, has strayed away from. And yet, John Calvin fearlessly looks into what the church fathers have done, what they've said, and says, we can be learning from this. So when you uh, are articulating the, the different perspectives from different um, denominations or, or the 
Roman Catholic versus Eastern Orthodox, and and you have students who have are coming from those faith backgrounds, and they they're like, oh, that sounds really familiar. Whatever. Are, what are class discussions like, and how do students interact with each other when they have these differing ideas? I think that. A lot of times, even though we have students uh, that are from these various backgrounds, these faith traditions, a lot of times they're trying to understand what it is their faith tradition believes. And so the conversation isn't often um, a question of who's right and who's wrong and why. A lot of times it's what does my faith tradition believe to begin with? And so... Um, certainly there are times when the conversation goes down roads of, well, why do they believe that and, and what is better? And again, my job isn't to be prescriptive in that case, but to say, hey, here's some of the reasons why they believe what they believe, and I'm going to let you decide uh, from there. Um, obviously, saying that your your parents and your pastor are ultimately your spiritual authorities, not me in the classroom. So. That is a little bit of what the conversation looks like in my kind of real-time experience, to be honest. Yeah, and I think in my own experience, and and Russ, you can speak to this too. I know that we have this weird situation where three of the four of us Mm -hmm. have taught this class. Uh, and Even though you want to teach it. That's right. I would love to. Yeah, turn it into an art class. (laughs) It would just be the Lutheran perspective. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Then your art school background would be appropriate. Exactly. As you violate the second commandment. Oh, gosh. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Axel just wrote this. I don't know if we keep this or not, but (laughs) Axel just wrote a paper he got to choose in history, and it was on iconography. Oh, that's going to be He's going to be converted. His defense on iconography. Um, Easy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I just remember in my own experience, there's a sense in which the texts are really having a conversation. Mm -hmm. So we were investigating, you know, different systematicians from these different traditions. And really, they're the ones that are doing the talking. And in fact, rather explicitly with one another. So you'll have a reformed systematician referencing Uh, the dogmatics of a Lutheran and a Roman Catholic, and then vice versa. So they're all interacting with one another. And then the students are seeing how they're interacting with one another. So we've got these kind of like two levels of conversation happening. Um, And my experience was the same as yours, Brent, that really they're learning more about their own beliefs and the history of their beliefs such that I mean, yeah, I can think of students who have come from as diverse backgrounds as, as you said, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, um, Mormon, and other uh, Protestant traditions. And a number of them have looked back on their systematic theology experience and said it was one of their favorites, uh, despite the fact that they may otherwise um, not be the majority tradition that's represented on Mm -hmm. campus. Yeah, just that opportunity to be able to explore one's own faith tradition is an opportunity that most of us aren't afforded ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the fact that they get a an approach to their faith that says, here are all the, the core doctrines, um, and we're going to walk you through them. Um, yeah. And not to belabor the point, but again, to understand them in light of some of their competitors is such a rich experience. Um, So I think that there's a sense in which you're going to better be able to understand what you believe and why you believe it. But also because it's been put in conversation with those 
uh, scholars who might disagree, you have a better way to even articulate some of these things as you imitate the, the kind of great minds that have come before. Yeah. Maybe just one other thing to add. You know, as we're talking about classroom discussion, one of the the points of discussion in class is um, how these uh, systematicians came to the conclusions they did as we're reading some of the primary source material. And in order to do that, we're looking particularly at their exegesis of texts. Well, our eighth grade class is designed to not holistically, but to give some exegetical tools for these students to be able to work with the text that these systematicians in ninth grade are unpacking for them. And so it gives them, again, some evaluative lenses to be able to understand these things that they're reading. And I can't help but thinking as, as I'm listening to you, you know, again, returning to this, you know, what makes a, uh, as a Christian school and what is with the values that for for Christian families and we, the, the the reality is we just live in a day where for most people who are even part of a, a really good church you you don't have the kind of time to to have this kind of training and equipping in the scriptures where uh, you're going to be able to look at these different faith traditions you're, you're going to look at these this dialogue going on between Lutherans and Presbyterians just historically and it's just it, I just think the equipping that goes on in something like that and 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 honestly I just I I, I love that about the school in terms of what um, our kids are getting uh, and I and, and I hear it, it it articulated this way by their parents where it not just it in general they say boy I wish I could have had this kind of education but when we talk about what they're getting in Bible specifically it's they look at it and they say wow uh, what a head start, mm-hmm. and 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 what a blessing to be able to to be able to think through things like this theologically at this level, in community, uh, with with folks who have have thought quite a bit about this and are continuing to direct them still back to their churches and their their homes mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And so, I just uh, it's it's really exciting um, just to to watch this unfold. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would imagine also as you're talking about different uh, different perspectives and, and different students have different ideas that they that they hold to uh, that it is at the same time building in them humility um, for their own perspective because they're seeing people that they other people that they respect and that they love having a different opinion um, and also empathy for, for others. Yeah. Um, are, are there times that you've seen seen that come up or um, how, how, how does the building of virtue play into some of these classes as well? Yeah, I love uh, when we get to read some of the reformers' works. Um, one of the, the phrases that will come up again and again is uh, that we ought to stop where Scripture does not say something about the subject. And they're even kind of exemplified in some of the theologians we're reading is a sense that Scripture is our guide. And Scripture tells us many things. It reveals to us so much. And yet we have to humbly sit back as creatures and say, uh, we're never going to understand everything. There's a great mystery to who God is. And uh, and we see this mystery even exemplified in the Trinity as we get to how does how do these three persons interact? What are their roles? Um, we have some sense now. Certainly we have a greater sense than did the, sa- the saints of the Old Testament, and yet it's still mysterious. Um, and so 
that ought to kind of engender a sense of humility in us if some of the greatest minds in theology have been uh, unable to perfectly articulate it. Uh, what then does that mean about us as students? So after ninth grade, then we transition into 10th grade and what are they learning there? Yeah. So 10th grade is our church history course. And the goal of our 10th grade church history course is to get to see the development of the church throughout the ages. So in ninth grade, we got to see these core uh, doctrines that have affected the church. And in 10th grade, we asked a question, well, where did those doctrines come from historically? We want to situate um, these doctrines within their historical time and place so that we understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like to start out our 10th grade church history class by saying that uh, Jesus came back to life. He resurrected. And then he looked at uh, the people of this new religion that he had started and said, see you later. And uh, what a shock that must have been to some of these original followers. Um, Of course, the spirit comes uh, and the spirit lives inside of these fallen creatures, uh, creatures on their way to glory, but fallen nevertheless. And so we've got a history of believers that is marked with beautiful moments where God and his in his providence has worked out wonderful things for the glory of himself. But we also have a lot of moments that are fraught with error and problems. And so we get to watch that story work itself out. And that history kind of carries on the tradition that we have inscribed in Scripture. You know, this redemptive history that is being worked out that is also fraught with a whole host of failings. And in fact, only uh, one perfect worker. Um and so it's, it's just uh, I'm just noticing the kind of trajectory here from seventh grade onward that it really is this kind of like larger story with this little kind of well not little but this robust parenthetical moment where you are reminding uh, students of to quote a seminary professor it is the doctrine that's rooted in the uh, drama uh, that we have of these of these scriptural narratives. Certainly. Yeah. And just as the dogma has worked itself out through the New Testament, we see Christ coming and in this great dramatic event, he unveils himself as the savior of the world. It is uh, appropriate that dogma follows from that as we see the writing of the New Testament canon. Um, Similarly, different certainly, but uh, similarly, we see that as the drama of uh, the drama of the New Testament continues, (laughs) that the, the drama of the church continues, dogmas are going to arise as we begin to unpack the mysteries that are found within scripture. Um, What is the timeline of your church history class? When do you start and when do you end? Yeah. So we start at the the dawn of the church at Pentecost. We'll um, follow it all the way through until the 20th century. Um, Mm -hmm. The kind of ways that we break it up um, from about one to 500, we'll call the early church from about 500 to 1500, we'll call the middle ages and the medieval church. Um, And then uh, we will call from 1500 to about now as this kind of reformational church, which gives way to an enlightenment church and a modern church from there. So that's kind of how we that's how we break it up and i love the 10th grade kind of overlap because in 10th grade you're teaching church history i'm teaching the history of rhetoric um we've got their history program they're going through uh early modern european 
history picking up from the Middle Ages or the Reformation, really, and uh, getting into this kind of pre-modern, modern turn. Um, and the 10th graders are just getting this kind of like robust, multi-perspectival approach to history where they're able to kind of see that really each historical narrative is a matter of emphasis, you know, so that as one thing is happening in the Christian tradition, another thing is happening in the rhetorical tradition, and another thing is happening in the political tradition. And all of these things are so closely intertwined. Um, so the fact that we have kind of the opportunity to be able to to weave this complex tapestry um, of historical narrative, taking on each of these emphases kind of in turn is really, a, I think, a rich and unique experience for our students. Yeah, certainly. I can think of a couple of examples um, just from a few weeks ago where we're uh, looking at a picture of the Pope calling out for uh, military aid, military assistance, and looking at particular figures like Pepin the Short and Charlemagne. And they know these figures. These are not foreign figures to them. In fact, they have a sense of how those uh, uh, political figures and how those religious figures are situated within their time and place. Mm -hmm. And so as we begin looking at the primary source documents, it's far more than a, um, hey, what does Mr. Baber need me to know for the test? Uh, but they're actually getting to see with their own eyes um, the, the outworking of a historical event. That's awesome. And then we uh, move over to CAPS. Expertise. Apologetics. Indeed. Well, maybe not, but I teach the class anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know you got into it a little bit um, last time as you were kind of giving a, a, mm -hmm. some broad brushstrokes on this. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, maybe you can summarize for us um, quickly kind of your approach to the apologetic endeavor and what that curriculum looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So apologetics is is defending the faith. It's making a, a defense for the Christian faith. It's uh, and and we do that a certain way. Uh, you know, one of the things that we talk about early on in our rhetorical training here, beginning with logic, when we start teaching the students about um, looking at arguments, looking at fallacies and stuff, is we 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 talk to them about a particular disposition we want them to have, a way that they're going to lean into people and uh, to other image bearers. And so uh, I love the language we use around here about uh, seeking to win people and not arguments ultimately, although arguments are important and we need to have sound arguments and we based on, on, on real knowledge. So we begin the apologetics class kind of really talking about disposition. What is the disposition of the apologist? Uh, and it ties with the, the classical modes of persuasion of uh, pathos and logos and ethos, especially ethos and uh, so that those are really critical things in terms of how we communicate and defend uh, what we hold dear and what we believe to be true. So we begin there. It sets the trajectory. And then we move into uh, something what has been called cultural apologetics. And it's uh, basically what that is. It's just trying to understand really the world that we live in. Uh, and uh, the situation, we look at a lot at uh, the example of Paul in Acts 17, where he, and when he goes into Athens, uh, what he demonstrates as he goes in to communicate truth and to defend truth in that context is that he knows a whole lot about Athenian culture. And uh, because he knows a lot about it, 
uh, he's able to apply the gospel in some very specific ways that that are that are winsome and relevant and um, and very forthright actually. And so um, so we look at Paul's uh, example in Athens about how you build bridges to uh, a world that doesn't believe the same way you do, how you do that by affirming what you can in the culture looking for those um, those common threads of, of connections that you can make. And then really the, the majority of the course then uh, is under the, the heading of um, the form of apologetics that's more philosophical. The, and we look at basically five schools of apologetics, classical apologetics, evidentialism, presuppositionalism, cumulative case, and then reformed epistemology. And that ties in really beautifully with what's going on in rhetoric, because uh, uh, the the persuasion and looking at things through a particular lens and speaking to people in different ways, we really are not championing one view of apologetics from that philosoph- philosophical those philosophical schools, but we really want them to see how you can actually p- uh, move in and out of those schools and apply them as lenses in different situations that perhaps some of those schools apply better in particular contexts than others. And so uh, by the end of uh, their junior year, uh, we really want them to to have sensitivities towards how they should uh, relate to others. Um, And this empathetic approach, uh, loving, winsome, with gentleness and respect, uh, understanding the world that they live in and then having these five lenses that are, ex- I just think, exceedingly helpful in terms of uh, forming good arguments, um, but also helping people to understand and, and to defend uh, this this faith that's been handed down to us from our fathers. It's awesome. I want to take the class. Well, come on. Okay. <laughs> I'll be there. Cultural apologetics just sounds like an excuse to watch TikToks. Oh, well, we yeah to to watch all kinds of fun. Yeah, um, you know it's it's like logic. You know to watch all kinds of fun advertisements and. Uh, uh-huh. um, you said advertisement. Fine. Yeah, advertisement. I, I know. I, are you from, aluminium? Are you from I, London? I am. London town. Tonight I am. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off. I said TikTok. You were gonna say. No, yeah, I mean, I was going to make a joke, and you made it for me, so. Stealing your jokes. I only wish I was as culturally literate as you. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I'm culturally illiterate. Yeah, that sounds awesome. It sounds like so much more fun than the apologetics class that I taught. So. Oh, I'm not sure I'm not sure about that. But I, could would you just take a uh, just a minute? Because I, I do think I, I was fascinated. I, I think you did such a... A great job when you built it because you were teaching the rhetoric course at the same time, and I and any student who takes the class is going to know what the final is going to be because and we can even talk about it now because I'm not concerned about well they'll listen to the podcast and they'll know the question but would you would you just take a minute and kind of talk about how the the apologetics course is specifically really connects with what you're doing in rhetoric? Yeah, I, I mean I think you hit on a big part of it. Um, I hadn't put it in these terms before, but thinking about the the disposition of the apologist, um, I wonder if there's some parallel with thinking about the kind of faculties of the rhetorician. Um, you know, Aristotle's 
kind of conception of rhetoric was not persuasion per se, but the ability to find the available means of mm. persuasion. Mm -hmm. And so it was this kind of this faculty of invention to be able to see what was on the kind of horizon of cultural resources and to figure out what was going to be uh, the most persuasive strategy. Yeah. Um, I don't know, I use that word lightly, but, um, and, I, and I think that kind of how you're, how you're approaching this is kind of under both banners is, is interesting, right? So in one case with the cultural approach, you really are kind of taking a look at the cultural resources. What kinds of things, what kinds of common values um, can we kind of occupy in common with our interlocutors and be able to use wisely um, in our conversations with uh, other people? And then uh, this kind of second part is something that I think we've seen this thread, I mean, all the way back when we were talking about systematics, right? The value of being able to take a look at diverse approaches to a particular topic. And in this case, that topic is defending the faith. And there are these five different approaches. And of course, there are more out there. But right. These really kind of cover these large swaths of philosophical approaches to defending the faith. And the idea that, as you say, that in any given situation, or as Aristotle would say, is in any particular case, you may have to find a different available means. And so somebody who is kind of questioning the historical reliability of the New Testament might need the evidentialist case for it. Somebody yeah. who's more philosophically inclined might actually respond better to a presuppositional, classical, or reformed epistemological approach. Um, and so, I, yeah, I like the idea of kind of making sure that we are, and as I think you said, you know, as, as just as Paul was, we are oriented to an audience, which mm -hmm. is a deeply rhetorical conviction um, that you recognize that you are not speaking in a vacuum, but that you are adapting discourse toward a particular end. Um, yeah. And so I, I'd say at that very basic level, you know, mm -hmm. there's a there's a lot of and maybe that doesn't sound basic to everybody, but um, but at least at that very basic level, I think there's so much overlap, um, not to mention the fact that, you know, we in this particular setting are doing apologetics in uh, America. And, you know, the other thing that we're doing in 11th grade is a lot of our contemporary rhetorics uh, work is taking a look at alongside American history and American literature, taking a look at the kind of distinctly American rhetorics and how people are made to be persuaded in um, a particular time with uh, this particular civic ethos, you mm -hmm. know, that Americans do have particular kind of convictions that may not be universal. We really are swayed um, uh, in some unique ways, given our history. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we can uh, we can kind of look to all of these different uh, classes and really assemble this, again, robust set of equipment to be able to, you know, talk to particular people uh, with particular convictions uh, in this kind of particular context. Mm. Yeah. Word. Word indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see what you did there. <laughs> I don't. Apologetics I don't. goes so, right into. Now go ahead. Yep. Yep. So after apologetics <laughs> in 11th grade, we move right on into ethics and aesthetics. That's right. What you teach? Yeah. I what, do. What you do there? We, 
ethics ethics stuff <laughs> yeah. one two three deontology nailed it consequentialism perfect or utilitarianism is it the same thing uh utilitarianism is a kind of a sub genre okay yeah and then virtue ethics yeah my boy aristotle yep bring it oh great so let's move on done I think, uh, the art student came through he's, i know right <laughs> there's one thing student. i know about that's right uh yeah we end me uh oh did you I not am. want me to well no i do okay so please tell us about <laughs> Um, so yeah, in 12th grade, we, um, you know, you can kind of sense that, uh, what Brent has done is built this, uh, foundation of the biblical narrative, these doctrines that, um, have been contested, but, uh, are nevertheless kind of held dear in uh, the Christian church. Uh, Russ kind of picks that up and we make this kind of practical turn in a sense, um, that we kind of know what we need to defend and the history of it's both proclamation and defense. Um, and then we pick up with that defense. And then I m- maybe just kind of serve as just one step further as we are pushing our seniors out the door uh, to go out into the world. Um, and we start talking about um, ethics and aesthetics. And I'd like to think about it in light of um, a couple of the other courses that they're taking here, maybe particularly government and econ, mm. um, you know, that we have now these students that are 17 or 18 years old uh, who are able to participate in civic life and um, have to make some some real decisions. Um, and so thinking about what we can do to best equip them in light of the kind of rich foundations that have been laid. And so as Jeff alluded to, uh, Ethics is, uh, we have a pretty straightforward, maybe at this point not surprising approach. We don't take any one particular approach, but we try to uh, draw a rough sketch of uh, the kind of dominant models of ethical inquiry. And so we start with uh, kind of our meta-ethical approach. We start asking questions um, like, is ethics uh, a field that uh, contains truth? Does it contain things that are actually knowable? Um, Is there such a thing as this kind of absolute good that we can uh, rely on? Um, How do we know what is good? Uh, So some of these kind of like broader questions that uh, we lay some groundwork um, for before we get into our normative ethical theories. And uh, we start with consequentialism. Uh, We read the primary texts and then we read some contemporary proponents of that we move into deontology and then we move into virtue ethics and those are kind of our three primary uh, uh, normative ethical uh, approaches again the model is just generally that we will read some primary source texts from uh, history and then we try to move into kind of contemporary work and then along the way we've also been taking a look at uh, these kinds of digressions uh, so to speak into applied ethics and so we will usually look at Um, some kind of applied case of, let's say, utilitarianism. So the case we've taken up this year actually is the issue of abortion. And so with each normative um, theory that we've studied, we've read um, a case or two um, for or against abortion using these particular models. Um, And so even now, as we, uh, in fact, just this week embarked upon uh, virtue ethics, in a few weeks, we'll pick up uh, an article that talks about abortion from an Aratic perspective. Um, and I, I like that. Not only is this an issue that obviously we have to be thinking about, but um, it's also uh, an issue that the students care a lot about. And you can really see how this normative, how these normative theories are worked out 
in a in this kind of common case that they'll all study. Uh, and then we make a pretty uh, a pretty important transition into um, a kind of distinctly Christian ethic, and it, it's complicated because it uh, the kind of Christian ethic in some sense really adopts some elements of all of these different theories. And um, I try to make an argument that um, having some sense of the virtues is a pretty important foundation for understanding biblical ethics. If for no other reason, when we are reading the New Testament, uh, the kind of dominant ethical theory there is certainly a virtue theory. Um, and so being able to kind of interact with some of these texts are, are important. But at the same time, we have to be able to talk about divine command theory and deontology and um, other things. And so we look at the Ten Commandments as kind of our larger structure to be able to investigate some of these kind of Christian commitments around ethical questions. We take a pretty robust picture of each of these commandments. And then something that uh, I work in pretty intentionally is um, how Christ fulfills each of these demands on us, these these ethical demands, because as we are called to be good, we also uh, maintain that uh, that is always uh, an imperfect endeavor, um, except for the one who mm-hmm. uh, was able to do it perfectly. And so uh, it's pretty important to me that we take a look at these demands that are placed upon us, but recognize at the same time that the law kills and uh, we go to the, the gospel. We see how how Christ fulfills these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we end the year by taking a look at some more applied cases. And this is a great moment because we get to interact with their neuroscience class um, and some of what they've talked about in government. And we'll be able to look at particular cases. I'll team up with Dr. Melissa Gingrich, who teaches the neuroscience course. And um, after kind of laying out a lot of the scientific uh, principles um, and activities, we will take a look at particular bioethical issues. And we'll pick up a lot of these cases that come from the National Institutes for Health um, and look not just at uh, how we might approach these things, given all the information that we studied um, in ethics, but they'll be able to weave in uh, the science behind it and then also think about uh, policy uh, sides of things as well. Um, so it's a really robust kind of end of the year for the seniors. And I think more than any other a program that I've seen, they're more than well equipped to be able to go out into the world and uh, think wisely about these issues that are going to be on their ballot boxes and affecting their families and other things. How do you move on then to aesthetics? Yeah. Is there a tie? There is, yeah. So, so much of the conversations are, are pretty parallel. Okay. And so we don't have to do uh, meta, uh, meta aesthetics over right. again because so much of those questions are, uh, so many of those questions are repeated. Um, so we pick up aesthetics at the very end of the year for probably about the last quarter or so. We actually approach aesthetics through a kind of virtue lens. And so we read a number of authors who have uh, approached it this way. Uh, We read a great work by Elaine Scarry called On Beauty and Being Just, Hmm. uh, where she makes some of these connections. Um, It's kind of nice. It corresponds with our trip to Italy. And so we see all of this art. We Mm -hmm. see this old architecture. We see these cathedrals and things. And so we have this kind of embodied aesthetic experience in a lot of ways. Um, Also, I spend less time on aesthetics in large part because of our robust curriculum elsewhere. They've taken years of art and art history and art criticism. We've studied visual rhetoric in, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all three years of our rhetoric curriculum. And so the student's relationship to the image is already um, a, a pretty profound one. And so we just kind of add on some some language borrowed from 
philosophical works uh, and try to make these connections. All right, so that's a robust Bible curriculum. I mean, uh, again, <laughs> just thinking about it in light of my own uh, seminary education, I mean, they really do kind of hit on so much of what we studied at a graduate level. Um, it's a that's a pretty sweet program. Um, and in many ways, that's just the first part and the easiest answer to this question. How is Cambridge Christian? We are Christian because we have these uh, kind of core classes that from K through 12 address the narrative and core tenets of Christianity in some really powerful ways. That's the easiest answer. But that's not the only answer. For that, tune in next week. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us this evening. Russ Kapuscinski, our assistant head of school, and Brent Baber, Bible teacher, house governor extraordinaire, and DJ Goodweiler. It's always good to have you here. And uh, thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to An Examined Education. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to check out our website, schedule a tour, reach out to the Advancement Office. We'd love to see you. And we'd love to hear what you have to say about the podcast. So be sure to check us out on your favorite social media platform. Again, that's at An Examined Education. Leave us a comment, rate and review, and we'll see you next time.